Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Boss Will Sloan. <laughs> Boss Will Sloan? Yeah, like Jim Geddes. What? Boss Jim Geddes. Who's that? From Citizen Kane. Didn't you just watch the movie? The, <laughs> oh, the evil yeah. guy that he's running against? <laughs> okay, okay. I, I'm sorry. You're making very deep cut references here. <laughs> and we're talking about Orson Welles. Who is Orson Welles? Never heard I don't of know. Him. He's no Alfred Hitchcock. No. So, yeah, Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. You just watched this movie again, right? Yes. I what did. does Citizen Kane mean to you? When did you first see it? Uh, you know, Citizen Kane was never really brought to me. No one really said that it was important that I knew. I actually first saw Citizen Kane when I asked for the DVD for Christmas as a kid. And I remember getting the two-disc special edition. Commentary by Roger Ebert. Yes, I, which I didn't listen to. And Peter Bogdanovich as well. And I put it on and I was just completely wowed at how visually stimulating the film was. Because you hear people talk about Citizen Kane and they... I'm trying to find words to say that it's like revolutionary and stuff like that, but it's also very fun to watch. And when at that point I started watching movies, that's what interested me most about them, of how, you know, they can tell the story in interesting ways. I have pretty clear memories of seeing Citizen Kane for the first time. I I became aware of it, as maybe other people in our generation did, when it was like on the AFI Top 100 list as the number one movie of all time. I think I'd seen Orson Welles in Casino Royale before with uh, with Woody Allen and Peter Sellers, which is a bad movie. I was 12 when I saw Citizen Kane for the first time, and it was one that I'd like... Did you see it in theaters? No, I saw it in theaters later that year, though, when the Royal played it. Ugh, you pretentious little snob. But I rented it from the library, and uh, I'd been sort of dreading watching it because I thought, oh, it's probably a grown-up movie. I probably won't understand it. It'll probably be There will boring. be no Jim Carrey's. No Jim Carrey's. I think at that... Or James Bond. Or Batman's. Yeah, all the things I liked as I was, you know, licking my lollipop and, you know, <laughs> with my pigtails, just a little kid. <laughs> yep. But I feel like at that stage of my life, if you were to ask me, like, what's a what's a great movie, I would have thought of something like, I don't know, like To Kill a Mockingbird or one of those, like, Hollywood tradition of quality films, sort of Oscar-y sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I remember watching Citizen Kane and, first of all, being blown away by that opening newsreel where they tell you the whole plot before the movie starts. I thought that was amazing. I remember also being amazed by how entertaining it was and how good Orson Welles was as an actor. Orson Welles was a child prodigy and was sort of regarded as a child prodigy well into his 20s. Yeah. Uh, when he was a teenager, he was already editing uh, books about Shakespeare and putting on elaborate stage productions. Uh, in New York with his Mercury Theater, you know, put on some very important productions like the Voodoo Macbeth or the Julius Caesar that was inspired by fascism. And most famously doing the radio broadcast of War of the Worlds that you, treated it like a... You all know this bullshit. Yeah, we, we don't need to tell these stories, right? You but, clicked on Orson Welles. You goddamn know What's who more is. important is that in the 70s, he was a pitchman for Paul Massal Wine. <laughs> yes. Uh, would sell no his wine before his time. final and arguably most famous role was as Unicron in the Transformers movie. And his the final performance he ever gave was in a commercial for Nashua Photocopiers, where he said, It was Shakespeare who said, What's in a name? In the world of modern day finance, the answer is everything. And when you buy a Nashua oh photocopier. Oh my god, you're going to do the entire commercial? <laughs> and I think I remember reading that he died uh, alone at his typewriter. 
Well, I mean, he had a wife and he had a mistress. Yeah, but she wasn't in the they room. They were not in the room, they, so they didn't hear him say Rosebud <laughs> as he, like, dropped the snow globe. What do you think his final words were? Houseman. <laughs> or, <laughs> I don't know, maybe. I would say, though, like, Orson Welles is probably one of my favorite uh, things to think about and to talk about. To think about? Yeah, just because uh, I can't think of another film director who, you know, with the possible exception of maybe Werner Herzog or John Huston, who had just such an amazing life who did so many things i mean the the fact that if he died at 25 he already would have had citizen kane and the the kind of historic stage productions and the radio that he did and then after that there was his involvement in politics you know writing for um writing speeches for roosevelt he did things like he had a radio show where he advocated on behalf of a black soldier who was wrongfully beaten by police in the south uh, and he was also a huge jerk. Well, sure. I mean, I didn't. I didn't say he was a flawless man. I'm just saying he ju- he just did an incredible range of things in his life to the to the point where he only made. I think he completed eleven or twelve films as a director. And I remember taking a course. When but he did probably, so much more than just that. I was probably twelve, I think, and I, they showed a citizen. Uh, Kane clip in this university course I was taking for I was a child prodigy like Orson Welles mm. and people still call me that child prodigy and they call you the Orson Welles of Toronto <laughs> after Teddy Bomb opened yeah that's right <laughs> and in the class after the Citizen Kane clip I went it's a, I think the teacher went does anybody know who Orson Welles was and I was like oh yeah he made one movie and the teacher was like what no he didn't he made tons of movies. And I remember asking, oh, what movies did he make? And the teacher could name none, which is crazy to me. I feel like that's changed somewhat, though. In recent years, maybe I'm just being delusional about this. I, I feel like the received wisdom for a long time was he made Citizen Kane and he peaked with that. And, and, and nothing came after and, that. Or not much came after. Whereas I feel like now movies like Touch of Evil and Chimes at Midnight and F for Fake are being regarded by Wells aficionados and even some general moviegoers as being maybe even the equal to or superior to Citizen Kane. But that could that happen because Citizen Kane has been on top for so long? I think so. Citizen Kane has been starting to look a little bit ossified at the top of all those lists. I mean, just recently it was voted off uh, for the first time. the uh, By Vertigo. By, vo- by Vertigo from the Sight and Sound top 10 poll. Do you think Vertigo is a better movie than Citizen Kane? Well, no, but I mean, who cares? <laughs> it's it's stupid. I actually think that Citizen Kane should have just stayed there because, like... Just in, in marble, it just ossifies at the top? And just because we've already sacrificed it. I mean, no movie can survive the weight of being called the greatest movie of all time, so why ruin another movie with that reputation? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, when, when I saw Citizen Kane first year film studies class i'm sure everybody had this experience we saw it in class where there were tons of people who were like i don't know i don't think it's the best movie ever made i, I think it's kind of overrated by the way my favorite movie is fight club <laughs> <laughs> boondock saints yeah boondock saints or some bullshit um so watching the movie did you watch it again be honest yes i did you did i, I watched you know i thought i thought i might not but then i was like oh well let's put it on and you know for the and 50th you time for the 50th time i was totally sucked into it and uh, to me, like, I know every second of this movie. Do so, you? Yeah, basically. Don't test me on that. But <laughs> I know I know this movie better than almost any other movie. With then the, you're with the, accept- the child that you haven't raised. With you the, know it better With the than possible that. exception of Batman and Ace Ventura, I know it better than any movie. And I feel it's almost like listening to a favorite album. You know, you just I, I just like be hearing the rhythm of it, hearing the, you know, seeing the visuals again. And what attracts you to Susan Kane though? Like, what do you connect with, even, let's say, beyond the way that it's 
it's made from a storytelling standpoint. What do you think resonates with people that are watching it to this day? I mean, Kane is a is a fascinating figure. This paradoxical figure who meant so many different things to so many different people was in some ways a great man and in some ways a terrible man. I think as uh, the neat trick that Wells and company were able to pull off is getting you to empathize with this man who is really not a good man mm-hmm. and to be interested in him. What do you think? Watching it this time, I kind of took a step back from all the technical trickery that's on display, and I really wanted to focus on, like, why is this movie considered one of the best of all time? Because, you know, it, it's okay. No, I'm kidding. This movie's great. <laughs> Overrated. Overrated. It's not as good as Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I think that does more for the genre that is called cinema than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, I find it kind of fascinating. It's like, what do people, what like resonates for them? And is it just because they're like, I feel like uh, Charles Foster Kane and I just want to be loved and nobody loves me? <laughs> Is that what all these critics are reflecting on when they watch this movie? Uh, maybe. The, the fact that Kane is played by Wells at his most charismatic probably helps him, you know, be an accessible character. I think it's kind of interesting that people do care about Kane so much, given that he's like a rich asshole. Yeah, and watching the movie again, I was like, is he kind of, does he pull himself up by his bootstraps? Is that like the beginning? And it's no, because he's rich from the get-go. And uh, me and Will talked about this before we started recording, but I was like, does he make any good business decisions that leads him to become richer? And the film doesn't really seem to indicate that. I, I mean, he loses a lot of his money in the Depression, so he's a somewhat shifty businessman. And as we find out when Thatcher confronts him, he's losing a million dollars a year on the Inquirer. Yeah, but he says he doesn't care. He says that he'll have to close this place in 60 years. years. (laughs) (laughs) You have that bit of music? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. The movie is filled with those kind of little, like, someone leaves a room where it's like, are you done with um, Thatcher's biography? He's like, yep. Uh, Do you know who Rosebud is? Nope. All right, I'm out of here. Like, he sort of sasses them, and then there's that awful radio (laughs) comedy music. Uh, I think, though, like, we see Kane in the early parts of the movie as kind of this dynamic young man who is kind of thumbing his nose at authority. So Wells kind of gets us on his side because he's somebody who's sticking it to Thatcher, that awful old man, or he's, he's sticking it to the... There's kind of a snobs versus the slob scene when he takes over the newspaper and he's like, from now on, the gossip of housewives will be our business. <laughs> and you're kind of like, yeah, stick it to the man. Um, so you kind of get on his side and, and admire his youthful exuberance before he becomes thoroughly loathsome. And when he becomes loathsome, one of the things that he does is that he does everything to, con- like, I guess to have his fingers in every pie and he just wants people to like him. That's the indication. Well, that we as get. Jed Leland says, you talk about the people as if you own them as mm-hmm. if they belong to you god what, what the hell's the line uh, when when your people find out start to demand something as their right instead of your gift mm-hmm. oh boy and why do you think <laughs> let's get let's play some armchair film uh, you want to know if kane is like wells yeah no that's not what i want <laughs> i want to know why kane wants to be loved as much as he wants to be well and- maybe it's because he lost his mother okay who cares? Grow up, you little, <laughs> you little baby. That's what I have to say. Wow, very unsympathetic. <laughs> yep, not sympathetic at all. So do you think if Kane had his sled the whole time <laughs> and, and was able to toboggan at Xanadu, he, he wouldn't have been so unhappy? Like, if it ended with a kind of third man type twist where uh, someone's like, Kane's not dead at all! There he is! And he's, and then tobogganing, he's like, out tobogganing down the hill. Tobogganing into the sunset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, you think people would love that? Uh, no, I think it would have made it a worse movie. <laughs> really? I think that would have lifted people's hearts a little bit more. Maybe William Randolph Hearst would have gone, you know what? This is a movie for me. 
Hey, did you know what Rosebud actually was? Yes, it was the uh, name of the private parts of William Randolph Hearst's mistress. That's right. So yeah. you can understand why he got upset. And why... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I mean, is it? it's difficult to talk about this movie without talking about William Randolph Hearst, that if you don't know, was a big... Basically, he was... He was the real-life Kane. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't seem to take uh, that many liberties with his life. It seemed to be pretty close to his own life. Well, it seems to have... It, like, Hearst seems to have launched the campaign against uh, Citizen Kane, basically over the honor of Marion Davies, his mistress. The movie would imply that she was this kind of talentless gold digger who who Hearst slash Kane uh, built into this big movie star or opera star, basically for his own ego. I mean, Hearst did something similar to Marion Davies, publicizing all her movies on the front pages of his newspaper. I, I feel like, though, that, that Wells said he always regretted that perception because there was another mogul that they sort of based it on who wasn't Hearst, who actually did build an opera house mm. for... I, I can't remember who that mogul was, but that strain of the movie was more based on him than Marion Davies. And how much clout do you put uh, behind the theory that William Randolph Hearst basically ruined Orson Welles following the release of Citizen Kane? I don't think Not that so. much, I mean, right? lots of other things happen. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to get into the old myths about Welles? That he had a fear of completion? <laughs> yeah, the old myth that Welles couldn't finish anything because he was always afraid of finishing stuff is sometimes twisted into like... He didn't care about finishing stuff. It was about the journey that mattered to him. Yeah, which I think in some cases was probably true. Uh, he had a film about Don Quixote that he, that he was tinkering with for something like 30 years and never finished. And oh, seemed, well, just seeing a master like Jess Franco was able to edit it and finish it for him. Right. It was eventually put out in a great version by Jess Franco. <laughs> and by that we mean it was terrible. But back to Kane, I think what's interesting one of the many things that's interesting about the movie it's a great movie to come along when you're young because it points to so many possible different issues about film studies so oh no we're getting into this now all right let me buckle up (laughs) and let's talk about some film theory i mean the movie is simultaneously both the perfect expression of the director as auteur as and one of one of the only really perfect examples of director's auteur to come out of the studio system. But it's also the perfect example of showing how film is a collaborative medium. Greg Tolan, the cinematographer. Or Robert Wise, the editor. Uh, Herman Mankiewicz, his screenplay. Which was a big controversy uh, because Pauline Kael wrote a very famous essay called Raising Cain, where she put the success of the film artistically at the feet of Herman... Uh, what does it do? What's the last Ma- name? Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. Well, that essay has been so debunked over the years. <laughs> it's like, crazy. If that essay had come out now, she would have been like Jonah Lehrer or something. Like she'd, She would have been one of those people who had just torn apart on yeah. social media. But it, I don't know. It's it, you, you can watch the movie and identified very clearly what everybody contributed that was Mm. their own but it's all at the service of one man's vision it also raises issues about you know what are the wells's whole career raises issues about what are the moral rights of the artist in kind of a capitalist market-driven uh studio system and that was made very clear with his next movie magnificent ambersons which he completed and then left to work on the film It's All True. It's All True being a commission by Franklin Roosevelt, where Wells went to South America to film a documentary about South America as kind of a goodwill gesture in the war. And then Magnificent Ambersons, the ending was cut off. 
and while Wells, yeah, while Wells was in South America by Robert Wise, and I think Wells never forgave Robert Wise. Really? Do you think they never really talked after that, or they didn't have any? Well, kind of... I don't know. I was never. <laughs> I, you, you never I sat in or asked Robert Wise or Orson Welles these questions. I didn't know personally, but Wells has been quoted speaking very disparagingly of Robert Wise, and so after that, it was it's all true, which sort of gave the perception that Wells was uncontrollable and he ran off on a wild goose chase in South America while he, while he should have been minding the store in yeah. Hollywood. And after that, what was the movie that he made after A Magnificent Emerson's? Was it... Well, for he, for four years, he worked as just an actor and a radio personality, and then he made The Stranger. Yeah, and The Stranger was a film that Wells has gone on record saying that he made just to prove that he could make like a regular film. So it's a very conventional film, linear. Uh, it, it stars Wells as an escaped Nazi war criminal who assumes a new identity in small town America and Edward G. Robinson as the Nazi hunter. Who's, Fun movie. Yeah, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> there's still some Wells-like touches, whether it be like a long take or a weird angle. But thematically, there's not really that much to chew on. I well, probably say. the most interesting part of the movie is when Edward G. Robinson makes Orson Welles' fiance watch footage from the concentration camps, and it's actual death camp footage. Mm-hmm. You don't see much that's really explicitly violent, but you do see it kind of out of focus. And I think it was the first time concentration camp footage was used in a commercial movie. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And following that, did he Wells go right to Macbeth after that? He made Lady from Shanghai at Columbia. William Castle was the second unit director on that film uh director of the tingler that's great that they collided (laughs) two great minds coming together wells from very early on was regarded in hollywood as somebody who you know like kane had the potential for greatness and lost it so his friends for instance he says that his friends would like cross the street to avoid him after he made lady from shanghai because they thought oh this is so unworthy of his talents And then he made a movie at Republic Pictures, Macbeth. And Republic Pictures being known as kind of Poverty Row Studios. Right, B-movies. Yeah, B-movies. And he was going to bring a touch of class to Poverty Row. And I think one of the reasons he also made Macbeth was he wanted to prove again, even though he did it twice times before, that he could make a movie under a certain, like, constraint. That film was made in, I think, something like three weeks or three and a half weeks. And it's a Shakespeare film, so that's hard. Yeah, I think it was something like 27 days was the exact. Okay. Which is kind of crazy for a man of Orson Welles stature who made these big pictures before that. Have you seen Macbeth? I have, and I very much enjoy it. That was a movie that when it came out was very much under the shadow of Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, Mm -hmm. which is much more of a conventional film stage play. And Olivier's Hamlet is great, but the the Wells movie, I, I think Macbeth is considered to be pretty much minor Wells, but it's still very dynamic and cinematic in a way that Olivier never was. The thing about Orson Welles' Macbeth is that I'm, usually when people think of Shakespeare adaptations, they think of Laurence Olivier, which is stagey and just kind of put the camera down and shoot it. And Wells is bringing a visual dynamicism to the film that you usually wouldn't associate. And he also underlays it with a lot of gothic overtones and makes it kind of look like a horror movie. And he also consciously made the sets look like sets. Mm -hmm. Then he did Othello as an independent film shot over something like five years, you know, a minute at a time whenever he got the money. And that's a movie that because of the way it was shot, it's just kind of like a ramshackle crazy quilt of a movie which has no or very little respect for the actual Shakespearean text it's translating the text into uh, a visual experience in the way that something like Verdi's opera about Romeo and Juliet is a, just a, a transposition of 
Shakespeare to another art form. But pretty much after Macbeth, other than Touch of Evil, he made for Universal, Wells didn't really work in the studio system after that from a directorial standpoint. That's correct. Although he was offered a chance to direct Popeye. Really? And he turned it down. That would have been fascinating. I mean... You, let's let's say that there was a bunch of times that he had chances to direct movies and he turned them down. Like, I think Peter Bogdanovich got him the job to direct... Um, Nickelodeon. Yeah. No, no, sorry, not Nickelodeon. St. Jack. Uh, or it's St. Jack. And there was the other one, too, that he ended up directing that was starring Sybil Shepard. It was the ad- adaptation of the Henry James novel. Oh, Daisy Miller. Daisy Miller, yeah. Orson Welles was supposed to direct that at some point, too. And he also turned that one down. Well, Orson Welles... It wasn't just that he was unemployable. He also got to a stage where, having been burned so many times, he, he didn't want to make a movie where he didn't have complete creative control. Yeah. Which necessitated becoming an independent. And what's interesting about the last 25 years of his career was the fact that there were so many movies that he funded from his own acting and that he left unfinished, sometimes by circumstance, but sometimes by personal choice, because he didn't have financiers on some of these movies, so he's under no obligation to finish them. If you read any biography about Orson Welles, it's all about him kind of chasing money. Like, he'll shoot two weeks, and then he has to find more money to continue. And what probably burned him a lot is that he would decide, oh, those two weeks, I don't want to use that footage. Like, even Othello, which we talked about, shot for weeks with um, uh, the actress that he was dating at the time and then he decided oh i'm gonna replace her with someone else so we have to reshoot all this footage over again or don quixote which again he shot over something like 30 years and never seemed in a rush to finish he just kind of enjoyed shooting it or he did another movie called the deep based on the novel where there were some post-production issues about it but according to his cinematographer gary graver he didn't finish it because he just didn't think it was a very good movie and he didn't have any financiers beating down his door, so he was able to not finish it. Orson Welles, I guess, after like Citizen Kane and all those movies, came to kind of a mythic figure in Hollywood, where at once he was, like, everyone was seemed to be like, oh, he's really good, like Peter Bogdanovich, the, uh, can I say famed director Peter Bogdanovich? Yeah, famed, I think he's as famous for being Orson Welles' friend now <laughs> yeah. as he was being a director, but yeah. There's some funny anecdotes, because uh, Peter Bogdanovich, I guess, kind of took in Orson Welles when he was at a rough place in his life, and that there's stories of Orson Welles living in Peter Bogdanovich's house, and uh, Bogdanovich's wife at the time, Sybil Shepard, was like, you need to get Welles out of here. <laughs> he stinks, <laughs> like, he takes up room. And, and, he, and he was also, like, kind of jealous of Peter Bogdanovich, because Bogdanovich was such a f- successful director at that point. Yeah. Uh, so the, so it became a tense friendship. <laughs> you think Orson Welles felt good that Vardanovich kind of had a career downward slide? Uh, oh, I, I wouldn't want to think that of Welles. <laughs> really? Because, you know, all the stories you read about Welles and not a nice man. Welles, uh, according to any biography of him, whenever he was on the set of somebody else's movies doing one of his cash grab acting roles, he treated the director, for the most part, pretty deplorably. And you can sort of understand, because imagine you're the director of Citizen Kane and you have to work with, I don't know, wh- whoever made Butterfly with, with Pia Zadora, you know, some garbage hack movie like that. Like, like we, would you really want to respect that director? But at the same time, <laughs> it feels like Wells was picking these roles that would demand almost nothing of him. Well, he could show up in a fake nose and, <laughs> yeah. and, and like give a hammy performance. A real Johnny Depp of his time. <laughs> And Orson Welles as well. I remember reading about him as far as acting goes, which is he was always, 
kind of uncomfortable about acting. There's a um, anecdote I heard where he was acting on The Third Man with Joseph Cotton, his friends from back in the Mercury Theater days. And Orson Welles kept flubbing his lines and he just couldn't get it out. When finally Joseph Cotton told the director uh, after Welles has left, he goes, yeah, Orson feels a little bit uh, insecure insecure about his acting when I'm around. <laughs> yeah, right. Because Joseph Cotton, he probably regarded as a real actor. Mm-hmm. Um there's a new book out by Simon Callow called Orson Welles' One Man Band, which covers the years from the late 40s to the early 60s. It's Callow's third biography about Welles. And when I heard and, about this, I was making fun of it. Um, me and Will were talking about uh, like Welles biographies, and I went, can you believe someone wrote like three volumes on Orson Welles and a fourth one is coming out? I also feel like Welles has such an amazing life that you could just hone in on any two years of his life and you could have a book. And I went, all right, I don't know about that. And then I went and picked up the book and read it. Wow, it is well-written and fascinating. But anyway, one of the recurring themes of that book is that Welles was so insecure about his acting to the point of being self-destructive so he would do things like have stage plays that he starred in and directed and he wouldn't let any of the actors rehearse with him as an actor he would rehearse all their scenes separately because he did and sometimes they wouldn't even perform with him until opening night uh, because he was so insecure about acting with other actors and being the director yeah that's one of those things it's like i remember when i first started writing screenplays i was like once i get that first screenplay out It'll be smooth sailing from that point on. But it's not. That stuff just gets harder. And I can't imagine Wells being the Wonder Boy his entire life. Mm -hmm. People and having not failed, but been disappointing in people's eyes, Mm -hmm. having to go and make more stuff. Mm -hmm. It's even tougher. He probably also didn't want to admit the vulnerability in front of his other actors that his talent wasn't God-given and that, yeah. he, 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 that he would have to work at it in some way. Yeah, he could screw up just as much as anybody else. There's a sense when you read accounts of him directing movies that he kind of liked to lord over the set in sort of a dictatorial way. And most people who worked on Wells' movies are pretty loyal towards him. He, They thought he was a very inspiring and exciting figure to work under, but he definitely liked being the boss. As far as figures that really were inspired by him and loyal to him, is there anyone more loyal to him than Gary Graver? I love Gary Graver. I love Gary Graver. Gary Graver well. has one of the best filmographies in the world. How has there not been like a biography written about this guy? There should. He's he's been involved in something like 200 or 300 movies. He's directed many movies. Most of them were exploitation films or porn por- 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 Gary Graver was one of the best porn directors. Mm-hmm. If you if anyone out there has seen Amanda by Night, that's yeah. a Gary Graver joint. <laughs> uh, but he, in 1970, offered his services to Wells pro bono to just shoot anything that Wells wanted. And didn't he just call him up? He just cold called him and Wells said, there have been only two cinematographers who contacted me. The other one was Greg Toland. <laughs> so I have a good feeling about you. And for the next 15 years, Graver, when he wasn't on call shooting a porno or something, was basically 24-7 on notice to Wells. And um, it's been said that... That Gary Graver's life was completely destroyed by his loyalty to Wells. Well, Wells is somebody who worked very hard on his own projects and I think expected the same of others. So he really worked Gary Graver hard for no pay. No pay. Nothing at all. Just the hope that the movie The Other Side of the Wind, which is Wells' final unfinished project, would come out. But between those times, did they make F for Fake before The Other Side of the Wind, or was it during? It was during. I think Wells has a remarkable evolution in his style over the years. He's always been a dynamic filmmaker, 
you know, you can see that in Citizen Kane. There's just so much happening in every scene, and the editing is so frantic. I mean, Wells has said that his favorite part of putting a movie together was the editing. Well, as as the years went by, and as he had, had to become a much more rapid-fire editor, basically through necessity. I mean, Othello, it's edited so quickly to hide all the flaws. <laughs> someone talking to someone else could be in a completely different country and talking to just a stand-in most of the time. But then he found that he liked that. So the movies become much more experimental with their editing as they go on, culminating with his work with Gary Graver, who was such a fluid and fast-thinking cinematographer. And also, he had a mistress at the time, Oya Kodar, mm-hmm. who was very much his partner in art. Yeah, Orson Welles did. Yeah, or Orson Welles did. Very much his partner in art, who brought who brought out something else in his work, too. Uh, something, let's call it eroticism. <laughs> eroticism. Uh, the two of them seem to have inspired a new phase in his working life from the 70s on. Which can be kind of crystallized in F is for fake. F for fake. F for fake. Now, I'm going to say F is for fake every time all right f for fake f for fake f for fake what is f for fake about f for fake is about fakeness or it's 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 a it's a documentary but it's more of an essay film mm-hmm. and it just tr- like bowling for columbine <laughs> just like boy as we said last episode michael moore the orson wells of our generation i i think so and it starts off with documenting a man who makes art forgeries by the name of elmir dehori and who is also being interviewed by a man who wrote a fake autobiography on howard hughes clifford irving wells took over over this documentary that had already been partly shot mm-hmm. about Elmir. And then right after he took it over, the news about Clifford Irving, who was, again, Elmir's biographer, had come out, which was kind of an amazing thing to discover. So it became this sort of freeform essay about fakery and trickery where Wells... And also about movie making and yeah. kind of, um, not magic, but magic well, in magic. the sense of illusion. That's what I'm looking Wells for. Wells calls himself a faker, mm-hmm. uh, bringing War of the Worlds into it. I find that part a little bit disingenuous oh do you yeah i don't i don't feel like wells really believes that he's a faker on the same level of elmir and clifford irving you don't think so no in fact i've heard him say that he called himself that just so he wouldn't think it wouldn't come across as if he thought he was superior to these subjects uh, yeah so and as well said so the whole movie really is about fakery because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's pretending to be a fake even though he doesn't believe that he's a fake it's a very dynamic movie that raises a lot of questions such as if elmir paints a painting that looks like a modigliani painting but is not like a copy just in the same style just in the same style but all the gallery owners think it's a modigliani painting does that make it a modigliani painting and you said no right when i say thought- no why not? Well, because I think technical virtuosity is only one part of art. I mm-hmm. think if Modigliani creates something, two of the most important things about art are the relationship between the artist and the audience. The, yep. the, the artist wants to communicate with the audience and the art's relation to the time that it was made. So if Modigliani paints painting, it exists in the continuum of his career. Okay. And it exists in the context of the time in which it was made. So wait, but so, if Elmir creates a painting, it doesn't, it's just a copy of something. It's, so what you're trying to say is that the, the art has no meaning in it because when it's made, it's just trying to imitate something. So basically all it has is the technical virtuosity of yes. Modigliani. It doesn't have any of the other meanings. So it do, it no emotion. You're an emotional man. When I think of Will Sloan, <laughs> I think of you angry in tears, I, making I, love. I'm a lover. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyone knows that. And then the film kind of goes in different directions, because that's kind of like, I guess the first two acts are about that, jumping back and forth as well as talking about fakery and actually um, 
giving the story to the audience in a kind of not convoluted way, but dynamic way. <laughs> Let's say that. Well, and as Wells warns us at the beginning of the movie, everything we tell you for the first hour of this film will be true. Yes. So that means the last half hour of the movie is a totally fictional story about Wells's mistress, Oya Kodar, becoming the mistress of Picasso and stealing all his paintings. Yes. And he pulls the rug out from under you at the very end saying, all that stuff we told you about Picasso was fake. Uh, I love that for fake. Dynamic work. I think it raises interesting questions. I think it's slightly less than perfect. I think that Wells knows he's kind of bullshitting us at every turn. And he's kind of like pulling a movie out of his ass at every at every point. He's kind of throwing everything to see what sticks. But isn't that the kind of... Uh the way that Wells works, like, he's known as a storyteller, great, everybody loved him, but he was a bullshitter, and he always bullshitted, whether it sure. be that in his teens he went to find himself in, where was it, Ireland, I think, to paint, and... Yeah, and he, and he would tell people in Europe that he'd been a star on Broadway, exactly, e- even when he was just a teenager. So, yeah, I mean, after fake, it's very much about a bullshit artist being a bullshit artist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, it sort of makes me think that it's kind of like this elaborate maze where there's n- where there's no way out of it. <laughs> it's like this big hall of mirrors. A real lady in Shanghai, if yeah. you will. Where there's kind of no or center Or the to Dragon, it. the original one. The original lady from Shanghai, <laughs> <Yep>. yeah. <laughs> Even though it came out afterwards. I'm aware, don't send letters to importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. You and I have seen about 40 minutes of his mythical, never finished last movie, The Other Side of the Wind. Yes. What was that about? Uh, the Other Side of the Wind, I mean, I even read a book. I think it's called the uh, Orson Welles' Last Movie. And it just came out about a year ago. Yeah, good book. Great book. I loved it. And it kind of takes us step by step about the uh, through the making of this unfinished film. Welles has spent about 30 years living in Europe in various countries, making movies in Europe. And then with the rise of kind of the new cinema, the Easy Riders Raging Bull generation, he moved back to Hollywood in 1970 because... There were all these young filmmakers who looked to him as a god, basically, mm-hmm. and he thought this might be a conducive ir- environment to make a movie. And wasn't he like, I'll just make a movie in like a month. Just, you know, get it out there, finish it off. The Other Side of the Wind was supposed to be very much a reflection of what was happening in movies at the time, where all the people of his generation were dying out, and these young new filmmakers were coming up. John Huston, Wells' old friend, starred as an aging film director, kind of a macho John Huston type, yep. who's trying to make a movie that would appeal to the youth market one styled very much in the style of antonioni yes and uh, who wells hated well he was not a fan of the neorealist movement that happened in italy and the young up-and-comer filmmaker is portrayed by shocker peter bogdanovich right and the movie is filled with people like henry jaglom paul mazursky dennis hopper other people who were young filmmakers at the time I just need to say that, isn't it sad that, like, Peter Bogdanovich at one point was, like, the young up-and-comer shaking things up? Because now he is the uh, statue version of the old guard, being like, movies aren't as good as they used to be back in the 40s. And also, uh, Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach produced Bogdanovich's last movie, so they're kind of like his Peter Bogdanovich. (laughs) You think that Noah Baumbach and Wes Anderson are the... Do you think there'll be an other side of the wind that's going to be made that Peter Bogdanovich makes? <laughs> I don't know. I think Peter Bogdanovich is like... Please, please stop making movies. <laughs> like, you're good. So this movie that Orson Welles made kind of went under a lot of different versions, though. And, like, at one point, Rich Little played a role. Right. Rich Little played the role that Peter Bogdanovich was supposed to be, but then apparently Rich Little just, like, left because... He's he... like, I've been here for a month. I have to go. Like, I am one of the country's most famous impressionists. <laughs> I think Rich... Is Rich Little still alive? I don't know. We should get him on the podcast. 
<laughs> to do his Orson Welles impersonation. Yeah, or, or Johnny or Johnny Carson or whatever. Hey, we have special guest Johnny Carson on the show. <laughs> hey, doesn't uh, Peter Bogdanovich do impersonations? We too? should have the two. They should guest Dueling. host, <laughs> and they should do it as ourselves, doing our voices. <laughs> but the other side of the wind was supposed to be re- uh, kind of bring his new style, it, this rapid fire editing style that he'd cultivated over the years, to its logical conclusion. Yeah, kind of multimedia too, like it's shot with many different formats, whether it be eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter, etc. It was going to be a day in the life of this aging film director shot by all the people in the movie holding cameras, it, it, kind of like a found footage film. And it would alternate that footage with footage from the aging film director's movie, his mm-hmm. Antonioni-esque movie that he was making. Now, the way that the book talks about this movie paints a picture of one specific thing, whether it be Red Desert, the Antonioni film, or um, I don't know, I was going to just say a bunch of other Antonioni films, <laughs> but... The footage we saw does feature a lot of this film within a film. And the main problem is it just looks like the rest of the movie. Well, it doesn't really... I mean, it, the, the problem with the film within a film, from what we've seen of it, is that it's really boring. Yes. So it's a lot of scenes of Oyakodar wandering around deserted landscapes. And the fact that Wells held this mode of filmmaking, this kind of art filmmaking, in such contempt... I think is communicated because there's there's nothing to it. Like but he, he was kind of in love with making these scenes as well. Well, he's satirizing the form while at the same time, the the fact that he's filming these scenes basically in character as John Huston's character gives him an excuse to make something like this. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how what this movie will look like. Supposedly, a deal is being negotiated to finish this movie. We will not live to see this movie come <laughs> out. There's no way. But it will be interesting when it is finished to the extent that it can be finished, what it will actually look like. The 40 minutes we saw are interesting, but incomprehensible. Yeah, well, because it's just a bunch of chunks missing. It's just random scenes. And supposedly Gary Graver went around with these 40 minutes trying to get people to invest in the movie. Can you imagine sitting there and watching it and being like, I don't know? Yeah. So, and after, I mean, Orson Welles, he just kind of worked on the other side of the wind until he passed away. Well, one of the financiers of the other side of the wind was the brother-in-law of the Shah of Iran. Mm. So that was one of the reasons why the movie never got finished, because the other side of the wind became an asset of, you know, the Shah and when the revolution happened. uh, Yeah. And it was also an issue with his mistress, who supposedly was very difficult to work with. Well, that's a problem now, because... For many years, the estate of Orson Welles has been sort of been fought over by the mistress, Oya Kodar, and Beatrice Welles, Orson Welles' daughter. So many, many hours of unfinished film has kind of been stuck in vaults yeah. because it, no, nobody has known who owns the rights to it. It seems to be starting to get untangled now. More and more stuff has been coming to light over the years. So I don't think we kind of answered the question of what, not just you, but a lot of people get obsessed over Orson Welles. Did you mention Orson Welles? I remember just writing uh, on Facebook that I read that Jonathan Rosenbaum book. A huge Welles fan? Scholar. Scholar, yeah. Going to the symposiums all the time, every year to talk about Orson Welles. Yeah. Do you think there's every year where they just get there and there's like, listen, he's been dead for <laughs> so long. What else do we have to say about him? Well, I think, it again, it comes back to the fact that he just had such an amazing life. There was so much going on in his life and career that you could... Like, you could never run out of things to talk about. And the fact that so much, so many of his projects have remained in legal limbo or are unfinished, and and nobody really knows how to finish them. Yeah, but that's impossible. what I'm saying, that without him to finish them, 
Like, what will that end result be? Well, I don't know if there can be an end result, yeah. but it will always be fascinating. Uh, this footage remains, and like we'll always be able to talk about what it would have been like if he'd been able to finish it. Kind of like Touch of Evil, which uh, if you get the Blu-ray version or whatever the DVD is, has like seven different well, versions. It, it of has the movie. three versions, yeah. uh, including a version that was prepared in the '90s that was in line with what Wells wanted it to be, according to a memo that he wrote. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I love Kane. It's one of my favorite movies, one of the most important movies of my life. I think I might be getting to the point where I prefer Touch of Evil. Really. I, I thought you were going to be like, not a fan of Touch of Evil. <laughs> and then I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I think it... Uh, You're a big fan of Charlton Heston and Brownface. Okay, here's the thing about Charlton Heston. Touch of Evil is such an over-the-top, stylized movie in so many ways that you need a guy like Heston in the middle of, middle of it. Just this straight rock of a character uh, to, I wasn't to critiquing his acting. I was just critiquing his brown face. Yeah, the brown face is problematic. <laughs> yes. I, I love the movie stylistically... I mean, you only have to watch the movie to see how dyna- oh God, dynamic yeah. it is. I also love the movie philosophically. The idea that, okay, spoiler for the end of Touch of Evil, <laughs> oh my but God. you've seen it. Yes. Quinlan, the corrupt cop played by Orson Welles, has spent the movie framing this poor Mexican kid for murder. After Quinlan dies, you know, he's planted evidence at the scene. After Quinlan dies, somebody from the from the department runs up and says, hey, the guy confessed. Turns out Quinlan was right the whole time. And I love the philosophy of the movie where it says, okay, so Quinlan's intuition was correct. Maybe his intuition was always correct. But at the end of the day, you can't run a police department like that. Yeah, that it's still wrong, even though that the kid confessed at the end of it all. And I also like the the empathy that Wells is able to generate for Quinlan. Who uh, Quinlan is just such a despicable figure, but Quinlan is also somebody who suffered so greatly in his life. His wife was killed and... You know, Quinlan is so respected and is such a powerful figure in this tiny little area of the world, this border town. But it means nothing. All he has is the chicken farm. But that's like any character that Orson Welles played within the context of the films he directed mm-hmm. all reflect back on Orson Welles, whether it be Kane, Quinlan, uh, I don't know, Macbeth. The he, he probably definitely like there's an element of autobiography he's bringing in the way that, you know, most great artists bring a certain element of autobiography to what they do. And, you know, I love how Touch of Evil uses the border as this kind of metaphor. I love how it has this pungent, sweaty atmosphere that you hardly ever see in movies of the 50s. I think the real great loss of Orson Welles dying when he did is that he never got a chance to work with Jerry Lewis. Well, have you seen, uh, there's a clip online of of Orson Welles on the Dick Cavett show making fun of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> what does he say exactly? He says something like, I saw Jerry Lewis the other night on the Tonight Show, and Jerry Lewis often likes to come across as a great thinker, which should be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I think that may be the second time you do that quote on the show. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a, in Peter Bogdanovich's book, This is Orson Welles. Great book. Great book. Bunch of interviews with Wells. Wells talks about seeing Jerry Lewis as the ladies' man and laughing so hard that he was crying. Like at the movie or with the movie? With the movie. Specifically the scene in The Ladies' Man where Jerry Lewis adjusts the mobster's hat. Yeah. Wells thought that was one of the funniest things he ever saw. Oh, okay. But later on when Jerry Lewis kind of became um, uh, unfashionable, Wells went with the popular. (laughs) I think Wells, you know, like many people, enjoyed Jerry Lewis as an actor and found him insufferable as a public figure. But actually, the two of them did work together on a little movie called Slapstick of Another Kind, (laughs) where uh, Jerry was an actor and Wells was the narrator. (laughs) Oh, that's right. (laughs) Uh, Probably his best work. (laughs) 
I think we talked about it in uh, the first episode of the Important Cinema Club. Oh, yeah. The Jerry Lewis one. We were young babes in the woods at that time. Now we're hardened men. Let's also bring up Chimes at Midnight briefly. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about that. That's the one that when people are talking about Orson Welles' masterpiece, the, like the French critics, they go toward that one. And the, the people who really know Wells, Wells' biographers, and Wells himself thought it was his best movie. He said his exact quote was, if I were to get into heaven on the basis of one movie i'd pick chimes at midnight Mm -hmm. this is the movie that he was a dream project of his for so many years where falstaff appeared in five shakespeare plays so wells made this this movie that was kind kind of of an aggregation of those five plays focusing on falstaff as the main character have you seen a fan film if you will (laughs) yeah have you seen chimes at midnight yeah but i saw it a long time ago i don't know how much i would have to say about it i've seen rating for that criterion re-release that's the thing i've seen it twice on not very good versions of it Mm. like bootleg versions i think it's a beautiful film the style is amazing it's it's also for people who don't know shakespeare that well i think it's one of the most accessible shakespeare films do you yeah i think so because it's just so dynamic yeah and wells is so much in touch with like the body comedy of shakespeare and the kind of emotional drama of shakespeare Mm -hmm. like the scene at the end when prince howe rejects falstaff like you really feel it in Mm -hmm. the movie uh, at the same time, I'm really looking forward to when Criterion puts it out later this year, so I get a better sense A better of version yeah. than those kind of like washed out, muddy prints that we've been seeing. Yeah. Which is, I'm, I'm curious, I'm sure it's caught up in all kind of legal ramblings is why there hasn't been a good version of that yet. That, that is why. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently that's been all sorted out now, and there's a restored version that's playing in some theaters oh, across North America. That's good. I mean, what do you think Orson Welles' lasting legacy is to filmmakers of today? The, let's say the Paul W.S. Andersons. And yes, I'm talking about the director of Resident Evil. <laughs> How was he inspired by Orson Welles? I think uh, a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that it's twofold. The fact that he was able to make Citizen Kane despite the system, basically. That he was able to make a personal work of art in the studio system for a brief moment of time and i think he's also an inspiration as an independent filmmaker who's able to use his own money and use whatever means necessary to make some oftentimes imperfect but still very personal films yeah that's i think the most fascinating thing i find about orson welles and what's inspirational about him is that he did go out of his way to make these movies himself now did he make them in ways that weren't very efficient yes (laughs) but but in some ways he was very uh ingenious Mm -hmm. so the trial which was produced by Alexander and Ilya Salkind, who later made Superman, they came to him with a list of public domain books that he could make a movie about. And the only one that he was even remotely interested in was The Trial. I find The Trial a fascinating film. I like it very much, although many people don't. Peter Bogdanovich. Right. (laughs) But uh, they found out just before the movie was about to be made that actually it wasn't a public domain book. One of Kafka's relatives was still alive and they wanted a royalty payment. So they lost most of the budget on that. So a lot of the sets that they that they designed, they wouldn't be able to build. But Wells discovered uh, the Gare d'Orsay, which is now the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, a big abandoned train station. And he thought, oh, let's make the movie here. We can we can kind of improvise here. And the resulting movie, I mean, it's incredible, the atmosphere that it, he's able to use so many different parts of this abandoned train station to create this dreamlike atmosphere. I There's no doubt in my mind that he was able to exploit the things that he had. Mm-hmm. But I think that the way he was, his mode of working... It wasn't efficient for the end result. Maybe. Well, I, I guess the other side of the wind would be the other side of the wind. Yeah. Where it's a movie that, yeah, he was supposed to make it a month, but he ended up tinkering with the editing for something like six or seven years, not 
not returning financiers' phone calls to the point where, yeah, the Shah of Iran was deposed and he wasn't able to make the movie anymore. If anybody wants to look at some of the weird projects that Orson Welles is, there was this article that was going around being like, Orson Welles edited a porno film. So that was one of Gary Graver's porno films. It was a movie called 3AM with Georgina Spelvin. Apparently... Uh, Orson Welles wanted Gary Graver to get over and get to work and Graver's like I'm on a deadline with this porn film and Welles is like alright I'll come over and Welles edited a sexy shower scene with Georgina Spelvin I haven't seen it actually but have I- you seen the clip where people are like oh you can tell the uh, high angles are Orson Welles yet and it's like no those are Gary Graver's shots uh, supposedly the editing gets a lot more stylish oh really uh, I have that movie and I haven't watched it yet <laughs> But I'm looking forward to it. Wells was actually quite a prude in real life, mm-hmm. in a weird way. So, I don't know. It's delightful that he edited a scene <laughs> of a porn movie. I didn't know that he was a prude, considering how much of a lady killer that he was. I know. Well, there, there was uh, he declined being in Caligula and Sallow on moral reasons. Wait, he was he was going to be cast in Sallow? Yeah, uh, Pasolini wanted him for one of the fascists. <laughs> in fact, Pasolini, I read this in Joseph McBride's book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles. He wanted Wells to play the fascist who gets peed on yeah uh and wells just <laughs> he's do like it. you're not paying me enough but he wells apparently told mcbride that he would never make a, a movie that was erotic oh i didn't know that and even it, though that kind of changed with the other side of the wind where he shot sex scenes with his mistress at the time well one of the reasons it's been speculated why he was able to shoot sex scenes for that movie was because he, he wasn't shooting it as himself he was shooting it as the film within a film which was made by the character so it almost like gave himself permission to indulge some of <laughs> in that experimentation but joseph mcbride who worked with wells on the other side of the wind at one point presented wells with a screenplay that he'd written and he just wanted his advice on it it was a very kind of tough and brutal screenplay about a nun who gets raped and it was mcbride was working through his issues with catholicism or mm-hmm. something wells read it and said I would do everything in my power to not have this movie made. <laughs> really? Which was apparently very wounding for Joseph McBride. Now, Oya Kodar was more understanding and was a little bit more open to difficult subject matter. But Wells would just sort of not hear about anything like that. Huh. All right. Well, that's Orson Welles. <laughs> yeah. This is Orson Welles. So, best movies. Transformers the movie. Yes. Uh, Casino Royale, mm-hmm. the VIPs, and his narration on Bugs Bunny Superstar. <laughs> He narrated Bugs Bunny Superstar? He certainly did. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, that's so sad. I have one more fun fact. Gary Graver is, I believe, the only person to work with both Orson Welles and Ed Wood. <laughs> what, did, what did Gary Graver do for Ed Wood? Gary Graver uh, shot and ghost-directed a movie called One Million ACDC, which yes. is sort of a nudie um, caveman movie. Ed Wood wrote the script. Huh. And Ed Wood wrote the script under the pseudonym Actov Telmig, which was vodka gimlet backwards <laughs> and if everybody wants to know no ed wood did not uh, in any documented fact meet orson welles no but he did apparently idolize orson welles mm. i mean uh, and you can see the influence all over ed wood's films. we didn't even talk about all the great orson welles performances that uh, uh, uh who cares ed wood um me and orson welles with pinky and the brain <laughs> <laughs> who cares uh, that Liv schreiber time that he played uh, orson welles yeah terrible i don't give a shit <laughs> What are we doing next week? We're doing um, Melvin Van Peebles. Now, you may be going, who's that? Melvin Van Peebles, uh, a real renaissance man. Mm -hmm. But what we're going to be talking about is the fact that he made Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which is credited by some as the first blaxploitation film. 
And he also made a film called Watermelon Man, yep, in, in which a racist white man wakes up one day to find that he's black. Yes. A very pioneering African-American filmmaker. And his son is Mario Van Peebles. Uh, of Jaws for the revenge fame. Sure. And New Jack City. <laughs> yeah, and New Jack. Sure. If you want to go with his more famous work. And Mario Van Peebles made a film about his father, Melvin, called Badass. And so next week, we're going to do kind of, I mean, we're not going to lie to you guys. We're going to do three films. We'll be doing uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Watermelon Man. And we'll also be talking about badass. Five S's. Exactly. Mm. And until then, my name is Justin LeClue. My name is Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. <laughs> the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne called Paul Masson. That is an awful Orson Welles. By the I, same French excellence. I feel I could do a better Orson Welles than that. Yeah, let's hear you, smarty pants. <laughs> this is, your Orson Welles sounds like a dying pirate. Well, he is drunk in that clip, right? Uh, I am Orson Welles. Good evening. I'm Orson Welles. <laughs> I mean, a little bit better. That's a young, sober Orson Welles. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the Mercury Theater. <laughs>